today we're going to discuss the disappearance and murder of Aton Pates. Aton was one of the original kids to be featured on the milk carton during the milk carton campaign. If you don't know what that is, during the 80s and 90s, there was a campaign that featured the faces of missing children and teens on milk cartons. The point of this was to get their faces out there to the public and hopefully help bring them home. A large number of these cases turned out to be runaways, but today's case was not a runaway. So who was Aton Pates? Aton was born October 9, 1972. He was the middle child of three children born to Stan and Julie Pates. By all accounts, he was a happy, sweet, loving little boy full of life and adventure. He never met a stranger. Everyone was his friend. He was also very eager to grow up and wanted some independence. But he had one big fear. That fear was to be lost. One newspaper article I read said that there was a time his mother stepped off an elevator and Aton didn't make it off before the doors closed. So he had to ride it alone all the way until it got back to the floor his mother was on. Of course, this scared and worried his mother, but it terrified him. The article said he cried and screamed the whole time. Poor little guy. Maybe this is where his fear of being lost came from. I wish I knew. Our story starts on the morning of May 25th, 1979. Atom was six years old. It was a misty morning. Like many days, Atom was up early getting himself ready for school. He dressed himself in a blue jacket, blue pants, blue sneakers with a fluorescent stripe, and his favorite hat that he always wore, a black, quote, pilot cap that said future flight captain on it. I read he wore this hat so much that when some people saw his missing persons flyers, they didn't recognize him because he wasn't wearing the hat in the pictures. Most days, his sister and him would walk to the school bus stop together. The stop was at the corner of Prince and West Broadway, just two blocks from the family's apartment on Prince Street in the neighborhood of Soho in Manhattan, New York. It was a simple straight walk. I'm unsure of the details as sources weren't clear, but this Friday morning, his sister wasn't going to walk to the bus stop with him. Aton begged and begged his mom to let him walk to the stop alone. He was only six years old, but his mother allowed this. Of course, this was before the time of stranger danger, and the 70s was a very, very trusting time. Aton's mom ran a daycare out of the family's apartment, and kids would be arriving soon, so she decided today was just as good as any to allow him to walk alone. In newspaper articles from 1979, it said that she kissed him goodbye and watched him walk down the street from the window of the apartment at around 8 a.m. However, her testimony during trial, she said that she was on the street and watched him walk down the road. Apparently, in the early days, she had thought she had watched him from the road, walked back upstairs, and then watched him from the window. However, after she was hypnotized, yes, there was hypnosis in this case. She realized she hadn't actually gone to the window that day, so she watched him from the road, get to the corner of Wooster Street and Prince. Then she went back upstairs, never making it to the window and never realizing this was the last time that she would see her sweet little boy. Aton walked away from his mother that morning, happy about his independence. He traveled down the not-so-crowded street with a bag. One thing said it was a book bag, another a duffel bag. Either way, sources said that it had toy trucks in it. He also had a dollar to buy a soda from the bodega to take for lunch that day. I'm from the South and we call them convenience stores or corner stores. We don't say bodega very often. So it's a word that I struggle with. And I'm telling you now, I'm sure I'm going to mess it up and I apologize. The original news articles of the time didn't talk about the bag or the dollar, nor the plan for him to stop at the bodega. 
to get a soda to take to school for lunch. I don't know if the police didn't know about it right away or if it was something that they kept to themselves away from the media. Either way, it did come out later that Aton had earned a dollar either a day or two before he went missing. He earned this from the handyman by helping him do some work. Aton was really proud of himself for this. He had asked his mom if he could use it to buy a soda. The bodega was on the same corner as the bus stop. So Julie didn't see a problem with this. I think it was probably the plan, even if his sister had walked with him that morning. To Aton's family, the rest of that Friday went on like normal. That was until around three or so in the afternoon when Aton should have returned home from school. Julie waited a little while, but slowly she began to get worried. She called another mother that often met the school bus at the stop and would walk with the kids home. She told Julie that Aton wasn't on the bus and that kids said that he didn't go to school that day. Julie's heart dropped. I can only imagine the fear, worry, and terror that ran through her at the sound of this. That couldn't be true. There was no way. There must have been a mistake. She watched him walk down the road, their safe little street, just two blocks away. This couldn't be right. Julie began calling others, her husband, and of course the police. Police knew that kidnappings were a rare thing and that most of the time kids would just lose track of time and get distracted. They didn't want to believe anything bad. To Julie, it seemed like forever before the police arrived. Her husband, Stan, had gotten home before the police. Like the police, he too thought and hoped that this was just a mistake, that by the time he arrived home, Aton would have been there, and this all would have just been a big misunderstanding. However, when he got home, he saw his wife, and he knew this was no mistake. Aton was really missing. I'm sure it wasn't as long as it may have seemed, but in that moment, it seemed like years for the police to arrive. When they did get there, they started with the normal things, questioning the family and neighbors. They still wanted to believe that, that Aton was around and just lost track of time. However, the longer they were there, the more they realized that, that wasn't the case. They set up headquarters in the Pace's living room and put a surveillance van on the street. They went door to door to dozens of buildings and thousands of apartments. They had helicopters looking on rooftops, dogs searching for his scent, and others canvassing the riverbanks. Each came up with nothing. Aton was simply gone. This particular Friday happened to be the start of the three-day memorial weekend. The school was closed already and it wouldn't open again until Tuesday. There was no way that they could wait that long to confirm whether Aton was or wasn't at school. Luckily, one of the officers remembered that they knew someone that worked at the school, so they reached out to their contact for help confirming whether he was or wasn't there. Sadly, they learned, in fact, that he did not make it to school. After questioning many parents and children, no one remembered even seeing Aton at the bus stop that morning. It was believed that Julie was the last person to see Aton before he disappeared. This made police believe something happened between his home and the school bus stop, again, just two blocks away. However, during their searches, police learned that Aton was confirmed to have been seen by two other people. One was a neighbor who said she saw Aton waiting at the corner of Wooster and Prince. This was the first intersection that he had to stop at to cross the street the same one his mom saw him reaching before she went inside. The second person to confirm seeing him was a mailman who saw Aton waiting at the same corner. The mailman said he saw Aton standing there waiting to cross the street, but he never actually saw him cross the street. His back was already to him, so basically Aton was standing there waiting. The mailman walked past him and went about his day. This made the location of his disappearance even smaller, down to just one block. Police canvassed the area, at one point having over 300 officers on foot, going door to door. It wasn't just police, but friends and neighbors were out and about putting up flyers, which they actually printed in three different languages. 
I just found this really fascinating. It showed the diversity of their little community and how they wanted to get the word out to everyone. A family friend had connections with travel and helped to send the flyers to over 60 different countries. Word spread quickly around the state, the country, and even internationally about the missing 40-inch tall, 50-pound, 6-year-old little boy from Soho, New York. Everyone was keeping an eye out. I read one little boy was picked up by police 11 times because he resembled Aton so much. It only stopped after his mom cut off all his hair. Aton's little brother was often mistaken for Aton at times. However, there really weren't many leads. Stan Pates said he would get, and I quote, 500 calls a day from psychos, end quote. This, of course, was not helpful. On June 6th, the door-to-door searches were called off. It wasn't because police and Aton's family were giving up hope. There just wasn't anything coming from these searches, so they had to come up with a different plan. At some point during the first year, police decided to use what we would call unconventional methods. I think back in the 70s, they used this technique a little more. They contacted psychics, and like I said earlier, they tried hypnotism. The mailman, the neighbor, and Aton's parents were all hypnotized to see if maybe they could recall something else from the morning, even just the smallest little detail. But like everything else in this case, the police got nothing. Aton's parents were also given lie detector tests, which they did pass. I don't believe they were ever really considered people of interest. Time went on, people moved away, detectives on the case changed. Life just continued. Stan and Julie Pates did everything they could to keep their son's story alive. In 1983, President Ronald Reagan declared May 25th, the anniversary of the kidnapping of Aton, as National Missing Children's Day. Aton wasn't going to be forgotten. One year later, the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, the NCMEC, was launched, which I'm happy to say that since it was created, more than 400,000 missing children have been found. But it's unbelievably sad and heartbreaking that that many and more have actually gone missing. In 1985, the milk carton campaign began, and Aton was selected as one of the first children to be featured on the milk cartons. This brought new life to the case, but nothing went anywhere with it. For many years, Aton's case remained open and cold, but not forgotten. People would claim to be the kidnapper, and some even claimed to be Aton, but all these were proven false. Like most cold cases, new detectives came and went, each putting a fresh pair of eyes on the case. Then in 1990, everything changed. Assistant United States Attorney Stuart R. Grebois named Jose Antonio Ramos the prime suspect in the case, and he even went as far as saying that he believed Aton was dead. So who was Ramos and how did he become the prime suspect after such a long time? Well, for this, we need to go back a few years, around 10. In 1985, Grabois received a case on Ramos. Ramos had been convicted on child sexual abuse. In 1982, multiple boys accused him of trying to get them to go into a drain pipe, like one of those really big huge ones that people can walk in. When police investigated the pipes, they found many pictures of Ramos and boys. Many of them resembled Aton. Let me be clear, they were not Aton. They just had similar characteristics like hair color, eye color, age, height, things like that. This, of course, was a red flag. Red flag number two, Ramos was in the area that Aton went missing at the time that he went missing. And red flag number three, the really big one, Ramos's ex-girlfriend knew the Pates family personally. In fact, sources said that she was Aton's babysitter. I'm not sure entirely how true that is, but other reports said that she did walk Aton and other kids to the school during the school bus strike. 
which incidentally had only recently ended just before Aton disappeared. So we have a man with connections to the missing child that was in the area of the abduction that had a type of victim that was very similar to the victim. It's no wonder Grabois thought what he thought. Detectives agreed this guy was worth looking into. Ramos was known to hang out in Washington Square Park, which was not far from the location of the bus stop. Aton had actually been to this park many a times. He would play there. Ramos told officials that on the morning of May 25th, 1979, a little boy around the age of seven was in Washington Square Park. He said the little boy approached him, started talking to him, and then Ramos took the boy back to his apartment. In 1988, Ramos actually told Grabois himself that he was 90% sure the boy was Aton. However, years later, he said the boy's name was Jimmy and it was not Aton. It turned out that Ramos had been traveling the country committing these awful acts. Grabois wanted to get Ramos and he wanted to stop him. He wanted to charge him with the murder of Aton, but he would have to start in 1990 with convicting him of another crime, the molestation of an eight-year-old boy in Pennsylvania. Ramos actually pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison. Stan Pates would send him Aton's missing persons flyers, and on the back he would write, What did you do to my little boy? He sent these twice a year, one on Aton's birthday and the other on the anniversary of his disappearance. In 2000, a search warrant was issued for the search of the apartment that Ramos lived in when Aton went missing. He allegedly told an inmate this is where he had disposed of the body of the boy from that day. I believe it was like in a furnace, maybe in the basement or something. Nothing came out of the search. The DA at the time did not think that there was enough evidence to get a conviction, so they did not prosecute Ramos. Even with the statements he made, there just wasn't any physical or corroborating evidence to connect him to the kidnapping. The Pates and Grabois did not agree with this. They believed Ramos was the one that took Aton. In 2000, another attorney, a friend of Grabois, came up with the idea to prosecute Ramos in a civil trial. In a civil trial, you don't have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt like you do in criminal trial. The catch, though, was that it would be a wrongful death case, which meant that Stan and Julie would have to have Aton declared legally dead. So in 2001, they made the heartbreaking decision to do this. They went before a judge, and on June 19, 2001, Aton was declared deceased, 22 years after he went missing. It was hoped that Ramos would incriminate himself in a civil trial, but that didn't happen. Ramos never said anything, and the Pates won their case. Even after winning the case, the DA would not prosecute Ramos in a criminal trial. In 2009, the Pates hoped this would all change. For the first time since Aton went missing, a new DA was going to be taking office. The new DA said that he would look at the case, and he did. But sadly, he agreed with the former DA that there was just not enough evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. It seemed that there would never be justice in the criminal side for Aton. Three years later, however, the tides turned in this cold case. In 2012, detectives decided to take another look at the handyman, the one that had given Aton that dollar. They started to dig up his old workshop, which was actually just a few blocks from where the Pates still lived in that apartment on Prince Street. Nothing was found and he was cleared. However, this dig brought some coverage from the media, which brought a little bit of new life to the case, which actually led to the biggest tip this case ever received. A man by the name of Jose Lopez saw the coverage and called in a tip. He told detectives that he believed his brother-in-law had committed the crime. So who was this brother-in-law and why did Jose 
Lopez think that he committed the crime. He told detectives that his brother-in-law, Pedro Hernandez, had been in the area at the time that Aton went missing and moved away shortly after the disappearance. He also said that throughout the years, Hernandez had told people that he heard a boy in Soho, New York. These people included his ex-wife, a religious group or priest, and a couple of other random friends. Not only did Hernandez say these things, but he was actually a stock boy at that bodega on the corner of Prince and West Broadway. The same bodega, Aton was going to buy a soda from that morning. Right away, detectives' ears perked up. Could this be real? Could this be the break they've been waiting for? They started going back over all the old notes, the case files, and sure enough, there was a note saying that a man named Pedro Hernandez, age 18, worked at the bodega. Detectives were unable to determine for sure if Hernandez had been questioned. There was literally no other notes. It just basically said his name and age and that he worked there. Possibly he had been interviewed and those notes got lost over time or they just wasn't written down. Maybe he was gone for the day. I don't really know. This wasn't something that the police dealt with every day, so maybe it got overlooked. Maybe it just got lost with time. I'm not blaming the police that they did a bad job or anything. It's just there wasn't any other information. On May 23rd, 2012, just two weeks after this tip came in, the police went to talk to Hernandez, who was now in New Jersey. They brought him into the police station. They spoke with him with no attorney for six hours before they finally started recording the conversation. Since there was no recording of that first six hours, we only have the detectives that were present in that room, their accounts for what was said. They said Hernandez confessed killing Aton. This is where I'm going to tell you what he said he did. So if you don't want to hear it, feel free to skip ahead a couple of minutes. Detective said that he said Aton was waiting at the bus stop. This is important because remember, no one else saw Aton at the bus stop. He said he then lured him into the basement of the bodega where he promised him a Coke, sorry, soda, where he then grabbed him from behind and strangled him. He put him in a box and carried him down the block away and then left him at the bottom of some stairs that went under a building, kind of like a basement maybe, supposedly with some other trash. To me, that seems like a weird place to put trash, but I'm not from the city, so maybe they stick trash like that kind of off to the side so that it's not on the sidewalk. I don't really know. If you know, feel free to email me and let me know. So after those six hours, they started recording Hernandez where he repeated this story. Officers asked him about the bag Aton had that day and he said he tossed it up on top of a shelf or a freezer. Remember, the bag was never found. So on May 24th, 2012, Hernandez was arrested and charged with murder. I'm not sure if it was before or after the arrest, but detectives asked Hernandez if he could retrace his steps from that day. So they took him out to the location. One of the detectives started recording him from his cell phone and he walked them through. A couple of things from this video. One, there was a part that he seemed to be confused on which door he went to. And another, he made the comment of there wasn't a door here back then. Not major things, but they did stick out to me and they stuck out to others, including his attorney and even to the detectives. Detectives thought that since he said there wasn't a door there, he knew this was the right location. I don't know. It seemed a little odd. After some time, Hernandez's trial finally started in January of 2015. It lasted three months. The jury deliberated for a whopping 18 days. The defense tried to say that due to a low IQ and mental illnesses, Hernandez couldn't understand what was going on, that he couldn't tell the difference between reality and fiction, that he was easily persuaded, 
he may have confessed, not realizing what he was confessing to, either to the police or these random people that he told over the years. They also said that the confession was coerced, pointing out to the fact that Aton was not at the bus stop that morning and that the bag was never found. If the bag had been tossed away, like he told the police, it should have been found a long time ago. The prosecution, however, said that Hernandez was perfectly capable of understanding things. Based on home videos, he never showed any signs of mental illness in the past. After that long 18 days, the jury finally came back, and in an 11-1 to 1 vote, a mistrial was announced. 11 jurors actually believed he was guilty, but there was one man that held out and he would not change his mind. Jurors said that they really struggled with Hernandez's mental health and his confession, whether it was coerced or not, and the fact that he was interviewed for six hours with no attorney or those conversations being recorded. The second trial began in October 19th of 2016. The prosecution and defense kind of went with the same strategies. However, I read that jurors from the first trial actually talked to the prosecution and gave them advice on things that they wish they had gone more in depth in. I also read that they got really close to the family, that many of them attended the new trial, and those that couldn't attend, they would be updated by those that were there. This didn't entirely seem fair to me. I don't know. This time, the jury deliberated for just nine days. On February 14th of 2017, the jury found Pedro Hernandez guilty of kidnapping and second-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 to life. The verdict came back nearly 37 years since Aton went missing. The jurors from the first trial said everyone finally got it right. However, that one lone juror from the first trial said he still believed Hernandez was innocent. I must say this one troubles me a little. I want all cases to be solved no matter how old or cold they are. I want justice for victims and their families. But to be honest, if I was on the jury for this case, I would probably have some doubts. Of course, I wasn't there. I didn't hear all the facts firsthand. Maybe there was other stuff in the court that I'm unaware of. But a few things undoubtedly stuck out to me and would have put doubt in my mind. I believe the bag would have been found if it had just been tossed away. I wonder if maybe not right away, but at some point, especially since that building has been changed to different kind of stores over the years, surely a bag would have been found somewhere. But again, it was never found. The other thing I said earlier, but I don't know much about it, is the tra way the trash works. Like how often is it picked up? Is it picked up by an actual human being or by a machine? Back then it was probably by a person. If everyone was on the lookout for this little boy, surely they would have looked in a box that was big enough to have a child in it and they would have found him. I mean, 300 people plus friends and family were searching all over the place. So unless that trash was picked up before the search started, surely someone would have looked in a box. Again, I don't know how the trash system works in the city, so maybe not. It's one of those things that if I was on the jury, I would have definitely questioned. So what do you guys think of this case? Did they get it right? Was it a wrongful conviction? Do you think Romos did it? Someone totally different? Let me know what you think. Share your thoughts and opinions with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Send me an email beforeamberpod at gmail.com. That's all we have for today. Thanks for listening. Sources for this case include cbsnews.com, nbcnewyork.com, The 48 Hours, Season 31, Episode 40, The Lost Boy, The New York Times, Press and Sun Bulletin, newspapers.com, crimelibrary.org, the book After Aton by Lisa R. Cohen from 2009, 
The Disappearance of Aton Pates by Anthony Bruno, The Daily News, White Buffalo News Pacers, Oddstop.com, and Wikipedia.com. Thanks again for listening, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Later.